chapter 9 speaks about revival leads to confession. Revival leads to confession. Chapter 9 records the events after the completion of the solemn assembly, which was held after the seven-day celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 8 ended with they deciding, hey, we must keep the festival of booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And then they call this solemn assembly together. Now, chapter 9 demonstrates what happens when God's people seek the Lord, hear the word of God, and respond to it. This is what this chapter is speaking about. When you and I seek the Lord, hear his word, and respond to it, what really happens, okay? Now, two days you know, after the end of the feast of, uh, festival of Booths, the people gather again. And this time, the gathering is different. They are gathering with fasting, sackcloth, and dirt on them to express grief over their sins. Again, the law of the Lord is read for several hours. And then the Levites, perhaps led by Ezra, pray in repentance, asking God to take note of their prayers. If you notice, along with Ezra 9 and Daniel chapter 9, this is one of the greatest prayers of confession in the Bible. And it contains a rich instruction about who God is, who we are, and how graciously God has worked on behalf of his people. Now, revival, when we are revived by God's word, when we look at ourselves in the light of God's word, we recognize how sinful we are, then it leads to repentance. And not just a one-time repentance, it's an ongoing repentance, okay? Why is it an ongoing repentance? Let's look at it. Remembering the past. Remembering the past. We are forgetful people, isn't it? We need to pray for better memories, okay? You know, if you notice the uh, uh, Old Testament, it's so specific about it, you know. This is why there are psalms and books, you know, repeating the same stories again and again. Now, why did they do that? Because, you know, they needed us to remember and not forget. Peter writing in his epistle says, you know, it is good that I remind you of these things, okay? Because we tend to forget. It was Samuel Johnson who said that people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. Reminded more than to be instructed. So maybe, you know, even during you know, uh, these series of studies that we have been doing, for some people it could be an instruction, first time they are learning all this. For some others it could also be a, a reminder. And chapter 9 is you know, actually dealing with this, you know, where the people of God remember, you know, remember what? Remember what God has done for them in the past. Remember how they have, you know, uh, in spite of all that God has done for them in the past, have deliberately gone away from him. It is good to remember the past. You know? Don't live in the past, but remember the past. Because when you look at the compare and contrast, this is what happened in the past. This is how we are living now. Are you living today in the light of what God has done for us in the past? Or have you forgotten what God has done for us in the past? This is what chapter 9 is all about. Number one, we need to make time to intentionally and purposefully remember. We must make time to intentionally and purposefully 
remember. Okay, they had all the feastings, they had all the you know, rejoicing, they had a fantastic festival, but you know, all this now has suddenly turned into chapter nine and verse one, where they are wearing sackcloth, where they are wearing sackcloth and remembering what God has done for them and how far they have gone away from what God has done for them. Chapter 8 focused on God's word to them. Now the people respond with their words to him, words of genuine sorrow about their sins and of grateful remembrance of God's grace. It is good to study God's word, but it is also good to look back on the milestones in your life and see what God has done for you in the past. You know, so that the more we can see, hey, you know, in spite of you know, who I was, this is what God did for me in the past. And then you look into your life today and say, if God did that for me in spite of who I am, what am I doing now? Why am I still wallowing in this sin? Why am I living in disobedience? You know, you know, when I think about the goodness of the God who has helped me in time past. In order to do this, you need to take time. You need to take time apart to seek the Lord. It was, it was a definitely intentional and a purposeful decision that they made. Look at the action verbs that are mentioned over there. They assembled. They separated, they confessed, they stood up, they read, they worshipped, they cried out. Okay, All these are all action words. It was a, a, a thing that they decided in their hearts to say, this is what we are going to do. Okay, That's the decision that they made. Remember the past, take time. You know, Even during this period when you say, I don't have much to do, I have too much to do, don't get immersed with all this, but take time to remember the past. A pastor by the name of Bob Moorhead says, we have learned to multiply our possessions, but we have reduced our values. We have learned how to make a living, but not a life. We have added years to life, not life to years. Ask yourself, is this true of you? Has life become a routine? Has life become an a lot of possessions, but no life whatsoever. Yes, you have been living for so many years, but no real life. But when you look back in the past, think of the time when you first came to know the Lord. Think of the vibrancy and your you know, excitement in knowing Him and what has happened today. Hurry is the greatest enemy of spiritual life in our day. Hurry destroys life. Hurry destroys life. But the greatest paradox is that many of us today are busy and they are also bored at the same time. We are so busy doing so many things, thinking that will give us satisfaction, but no, there's still so much of emptiness. Okay? We are hurrying and hurrying and hurrying. Stop, deliberately look back and see what God has done. What do these guys do? Number two, they remembered the character of God. They remembered the character of God. Okay, So this prayer begins with a recognition of who God is. It is a little similar to what the, you know, what the Lord said, you know, this is how we should pray. You know, it starts remembering his greatness. Okay, In chapter 9 verses 5 to 6, you know, we recognize the greatness of God, the greatness of God. Several times this word is used. You know, he is eternal. He is unique. He is the creator and the person, a preserver. 
And as the creator and the preserver, we are reminded that God is sovereign over all and that life comes from him and not from ourselves. So all praise goes to the creator and not to the creation. Idolatry comes when, as Augustine prayed, the world forgets you its creator and falls in love with what you have created instead of with you. The world forgives, world forgives you its creator and falls in love with what you have created instead of with you. Remember the past, the greatness of God, the fact that he is unique, that he is your creator and your preserver. Look back from the time that he created you. Look back from the time that he has recreated you. The Bible tells us that he is the one who knit us together in our mother's womb. The Bible also says he knows the number of hairs on our head. You know, he knows so much details about us. That is the greatness of God. Stop for a moment in your, all your hurriness and respond to his greatness in your life. Number two, remember his promises. <laughs> remember his promises. Verses 7 to 8, the prayer moves from you know, uh, speaking you know, about Abraham now. And then he moves on to speak about you know, Moses as well. And he, in, um, Ezra and Nehemiah over here, helped them to remember what God did for their fathers. And Abraham is a symbol of you know, the father of faith. And you know, this passage helps them to you know, remember the several acts of grace in the life of Abraham. You know, again, look back into your life and think about the several acts of grace upon our lives. First of all, now, God chose him. Has God chosen you and me? Yes. Who are we that we should be chosen by him? But God has chosen us. Secondly, God changed him. His name from Abraham to Abraham. Has God changed you? Has God you know, come into your life? And has there been a time in your life in which you can say, now I'm a new creation? God has done that. How? Not because of us. It's purely his grace. Next, it speaks about how God knew him. God knew the motives of Abraham's heart, isn't it? Even when he asked him to sacrifice his own son Isaac, God knew him. Has God taken you through different tough situations in life? And as a result of that, you have known him. Job could say that, isn't it? Now I have known him. Now I have come to know him in a more deeper way. And then it also speaks about how God used him how God used him. So you know, Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to help them to understand, hey, this is a God who keeps his promises from the calling till right up, you know, till the very end of how God used him as a father of faith for the children of Israel. Look back into your life. Think of your past as well. God has called you. God has recreated you. God has taken you through different tough situations, taught you different lessons. Don't forget what God has done. Keep on faithful to him. Number three, his loving path. His loving path. This prayer now from verses 9 to 12 moves from you know, Abraham to Moses. Here again, God chose an unlikely hero in Moses, isn't it? A person who had fled from Egypt 40 years earlier, guilty of murder. But here again, we find a combination of God's love and power, God's love and power, of how God used you know, uh, Moses to deliver them from you know, the nation of uh, uh, Egypt. 
how he vanquished their enemies, how he answered their prayers, how he overcame their fears, how he guided their steps, okay? Look back, look back on the time that God has taken you through the Red Sea experiences, how God has provided you with manna, all that his loving power. Fourthly, his abundant, generous goodness. His abundant, generous goodness, okay? The word give or variations of it in the Hebrew occurs 14 times in the 38 verses in this chapter. Our God is a generous God, okay? God did seven things for them. He gave them a geographical direction in verse 19. In verse 20, he gave them a spiritual insight. Verse 20, again, he gave them material provision, adequate clothing, physical stamina, military success numerical strength, guaranteed their food and water. Think of how much God had generously given to them. Can we look back also this evening and think about his abundant, generous goodness in our lives, how God has been faithful, taking us through even during this period. You know, he is a faithful God, a generous God. Remember his character. Fifthly, remember his grace. Remember his grace, okay? Look at what God did not do in his grace, okay? In verse 19, we read that he did not withdraw his presence. You know, in verse 20, we understand that he did not refuse his help. He did not withhold his provision either. All this is because of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. When you think about all that, you know, the children of Israel did in spite of all that God had done for them, you know, that is grace where God still responds, still responds to them. His presence is still there with them. The pillar of cloud and the fire by night continue to be with them. That is all his grace and grace alone. Ask ourselves, you know, is grace sufficient for every need? Yes, he has been with us, isn't it? Remember his, the past in your life. Sixthly, remember his patience and mercy. Remember his patience and mercy. In spite of all that God did for them, in verse 16 and 17, we, fee, we find that they refused to obey. They stiffened their neck. You know, they had stubborn pride. They were also disobedient and ungrateful. And not only just disobedient and ungrateful, there was also a blatant rebellion, isn't it? When you have Korah's rebellion. When uh, now they wanted to overthrow Rome and uh, Moses and said, we don't want him to be the leader over us. There was an uh, idolatry when they worshipped the golden calf. There was unashamed profanity where they committed great uh, blasphemies, where they began to even worship other gods. And, uh, think of all his patience when they did all this. They not only you know, ignored what God had said, but they took steps not to hear it again casting the law behind their backs so that the law was forgotten. And even if the prophets came and spoke to them, they even killed the prophets. Okay, But how patient and how merciful God is. Ask yourself even this evening about the patience of God in your life. If it has not been for his patience and mercy, where would we be? Remember the character of God. Remember the goodness of God. That will be a motivation factor for change. That will be a motivation factor for repentance. Number C, remember his continued faithfulness 
despite our repeated faithlessness. This, remember his continued faithfulness despite our repeated faithfulness. As the people are praying over here and rehearse the story of their forefathers, now the scene changes from their past to the distress in the present, hoping for a better future. And they approach God in several different ways. Okay, what are the ways that they approach him? Number one, they appeal to him personally. They appeal to him personally. Notice the phrase, our God, in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 32. They begin to see him not just as their God, not as just the God of their ancestors, you know, but they are also able to see him as our God and also see their sins as our sins. Okay, How much more do we know him as he revealed himself to us through his son? God has revealed himself to us, isn't it? Now they are able to move from, you know, not just the God and not just the God of the forefathers, but they are saying now he's our God. As a result, they come to him. Now, when we have studied his word, when we have that relationship with him and things are cleared out a little, then we begin to understand he is our God. So as a result, we can appeal to him personally, just as much as a son would come to his father and appeal the scripture is telling us you know, that we too can come before him in that manner. Number two, we appeal to his love. We appeal to his love. Okay, His love has never changed. Remember, God's love is always steadfast, isn't it? God's love is always steadfast. And I just mentioned plenty of times in scripture about how the steadfast love of God you know, uh, remains forever. So we remember his continued faithfulness in our lives. We remember you know, how, of how he has continued to love us steadfastly. Thirdly, we also recognize the devastation and cost of our sin. We also recognize the devastation and cost of our sin. They'll be able to recognize into, your, into their lives of what their sin had cost them, of how because of their sin they were taken into captivity into Babylon and you know, the destruction that they had faced over there. Their past disobedience you know, had affected every strata of society, and they were still suffering the consequences of that. They recognized that. Okay? So that's a change now. When they rem remembered who God is, how God has been with them, that is enabling them not to remain in that and recognize, hey, we need to do something about it. And fourthly, we know God is not done with us yet. We know God is not done with us yet. Yes, God has brought them back. Yes, the wall has been you know, rebuilt with the help of God. They recognize, even the people around recognize that you know, this could only have been God. So then they recognize God is there with them. But now they recognize there is something more. There is something more. God has not just been happy to bringing them back from Babylon. God has not just been happy in reconstruction of the temple. God has not just been happy reconstruction of the wall. God wants more from them. God wants them to be in a, in a our God, my God, personal God, that relationship and living a life that pleases him. That is what remembering the past would enable us to do. Okay? Think for a moment you know, as a practical application. Write down words from the time you were born to now. That will help you to remember God's hand in your life. 
Remember to look at it through the eyes of your salvation. Don't forget how he saved you from your sin. Okay? So think about God's goodness in your life. Look back. Try and you know, make a milestone. And I think when we were doing the book of you know, Esther, we looked at you know, split up your life into three sections. You know? Here, look at different, different things that have happened right from your birth. You know? The hand of God. Remember the past. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember how he has been good to us, even though there were times we went astray, even though there were times of rebellion, of how God was still faithful and merciful. It's the loving kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Okay? It is not to say you're wrong, so you need to repent. The more we recognize how good God is, that will cause us to come in repentance before him. Thirdly, the reasons for an ongoing repentance. Okay? You know, the reasons for an ongoing repentance. When the more, you know, chapter 8 and 9 is speaking about the goodness of God, the word of God. The more we study his word, the more we recognize who God is. That causes us to come before him in repentance, you know, not just once, all the time. Why? Because, number one, we are so prone to sin. We are so prone to sin. <coughs> Robert Robinson, who wrote the well-known hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, has a stanza in that which says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The word of God reveals to us the true condition of our hearts. Sin deceives us and blinds us to our true condition. We are prone to think in a, of a comparison to others and say, I'm better than the other person or I'm more godly than the other person. You know? It's like the tax collector and the publican, isn't it? You, know? you say, I'm not like that guy. And we pat ourselves on the back. You know? But if we come before God, then we are able to recognize we are more prone to sin on a daily basis. And as a result, we need to have an ongoing repentance. There's a paradox in the Christian life. The longer you walk with God, the more godly you become, right? The more closer you come to God also, the more godly you become, the more you are aware of the terrible depravity of your own heart. It is like, you know, if you have you know, a hundred watt bulb, you, know, you find that the place is quite clean. But if you increase the wattage, put a halogen lamp maybe, then you find there's so much more dirt. The more we come closer to the light, more light has become visible, then more dirt also becomes visible to us. That is why there's a need for an ongoing repentance, an ongoing you know, change of heart. Number B, God is so rich in mercy. God is so rich in mercy. The need for an ongoing repentance, number one, is because we are prone to sin. But on the other hand, God is also rich in mercy. God's abundant mercy is the dominant theme of this particular prayer. God's abundant mercy is primarily so that he will be glorified and secondly, only for our benefit. Remember that. God's mercy is so that he would be glorified and secondarily only for our benefit. In Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16, we read where the Lord says concerning Pharaoh, for this reason... I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my path and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Okay, so that his glory would be <laughs> revealed. Paul again mentioned this in Romans 9:17, <clears throat> where he says, So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he 
desires. So when you're thinking about God's mercy, it is not because we have merited it. It is only because he is merciful so that he can is glorified. And as a result, we thank God for that. And we want to come closer to him because of the riches of his mercy. Secondly, God's abundant mercy does not come to us through anything in us, but through his free grace in Christ. Isn't it? That's so true. It is not because of us. It is not because we have done some penance. It is not because we have done some good deeds that God will say, okay, I'll be merciful to this person. No, it is purely his grace and his grace alone. So when you're looking at our lives in the light of God's word, we recognize how sinful we are. We give thanks to God for his mercy upon our lives. It is not because of us. We don't deserve it any, in any ways. We recognize his grace upon us then it leads us to an ongoing repentance, an ongoing repentance. An ongoing repentance should mark our lives. An ongoing repentance should mark our lives. Believers should always rejoice, isn't it? The Bible says rejoice always, okay? Yet we should also mourn over our sins. And this mourning for sin should be both for our personal sins as well as for the corporate sins of God's people. James Montgomery Boyce, in his uh, commentary on Nehemiah, writes, and, uh, he shows the progression of thought that flows from this prayer. First, there can be no genuine forward moral progress for either a nation or an individual without an acknowledgement of sorrow for and a true turning from sin. Okay, that's the number one. If there needs to be change, okay, number one is acknowledgement of sin. Okay, number two, but there can be no true sense of what sin is or a knowledge of why it is sinful without a hearing of and response to the law of God. Okay, for a genuine move of God, genuine progress, there has to be an acknowledgement of sin. But an acknowledgement of sin would only come when we know God's word, when we know what is right and wrong based on God's word. Thirdly, Consequently, revival must be preceded by sound preaching of the whole counsel of God, particularly of the law of God, where we have, which we have violated. So in order for these two things to come together, it's the word of God that links it up, isn't it? To recognize what sin is as we study God's word, to recognize who God is as we study God's word. So ongoing repentance takes sin seriously and takes the necessary steps to break away from it. Let's look at a couple of application questions for this section. In Number one, in what sense and to what degree should we confess the sins of our fathers, and what does this mean? You notice in chapter 9, verse 2, there's an offense of you know, bringing a cross to say, we have sinned, okay? In Nehemiah chapter 1, also we learned about how Nehemiah prayed, we have sinned, okay? So, to what degree should we confess our sins? To what degree should we confess corporate sins? Number two, one popular author argues that if we view ourselves as sinners, we will sin more. Is that true? If we view ourselves as sinners, we will sin more. Why is he mistaken? Where is the right balance between seeing ourselves both as righteous in Christ and yet the chief of sinners? 
Remember when Paul mentioned that passage in, in Timothy where he says, I'm the chief of sinners. This was not right in the beginning of his uh, uh, coming to know the Lord. This was more or less at the end of his walk with God, where he's able to recognize, now I've not made it. No, he recognizes I'm still the chief of sinners. There has to be a right balance between these two. Number three, why is it important to see that God's chief aim in salvation is his glory even above our well-being? God's chief aim in salvation is his glory above our well-being. Oftentimes, you look at salvation in terms of from our perspective, they say, you know, we have been saved, we are redeemed, you know, but God's chief aim in salvation is his glory, that he is glorified when our response to him comes, comes around. Number four, why does it matter that salvation is totally of God and not a joint endeavor between God and sinners? That's a question that we need to think on because the more we study God's word, the more we recognize that salvation is by grace you have been saved. It's not a joint endeavor. God does not say, if you do this, if you come halfway mark, I will take you the other half. No, it is not a joint endeavor. It is totally of God. Why is this so very important when we understand what salvation is? Because the more we grasp this truth, the more it would help us not to play around with sin, but to say, Lord, if this is how much you love me, if this is how much you care for me, just as much as these individuals, when they read the word, when the word was exposed to them, they recognize, Lord, if you are so good, if you are so faithful, why have we done this? We want to come back to you in obedience to do what your word tells us to do. Shall we bow our heads in prayer together?